Oh, there's something there, I think. Right? Yeah, it's good enough anyway. Hopefully people online can hear it. Um, well, I'm, I'm excited to go through Philemon. We're going to do these next three weeks. We're going to go through Philemon uh, all together. And instead of going, what we normally do is we would normally kind of go uh, like chunks of verses and chunks of verses and chunks of verses. What we're going to do is basically do all the verses three weeks in a row, but from three different perspectives. One from Philemon's perspective, one from Onesimus' perspective, and one from Paul. We're going to be on Onesimus' perspective today. Um, now, one of the reasons I felt like it was timely for us to learn from this letter today is that it's all about community. It's all about the like living out the common unity that we have with each other, which is another way of talking about community. But it's also where the idea of community meets actual real relationships and actions. Like Everyone likes the idea of community, but actually doing the thing is a lot more difficult than the idea of the thing. Uh, I think we also have a tendency to idealize community. But this short letter kind of puts everything in the real world, but let, puts the rubber on the road. Uh, so we're looking at uh, Philemon, the kind of the big the idea, the big phrase is this idea of common unity, working out what it means to be a member of God's new community on earth. And I think it's interesting that of all people of all time, we have more access to community than anyone who has ever lived ever. But yet also we're probably one of the most lonely, if not the most loneliest people who have ever lived ever. We have technology, we have travel, we have... Uh, we live longer, we, you know, all, all the kinds of things. And often what we do is we don't use them to grow closer to each other. We often use them to grow farther apart. We are living during an epidemic of loneliness. But Jesus calls us to something more. In fact, it's something more than calls. He creates a community that's better than just the status quo. And he more than, actually even more than calling and creating, he enables this community to, to, to work in the way that we'll read about here. I think this particular letter is really interesting because it's different than all of other, all Paul's other letters because it's written to an individual, this individual named Philemon. Um, it's very short. It doesn't contain a whole lot of like, theological language. Uh, what Philemon offers is a peek into the lives of Christians who are living out real relationships. Basically, if you believe all of what Paul's written about in the New Testament, this is what your life kind of should look like, or at least one aspect of it anyway. And the foundation of this letter comes from our common unity in the church. All those who are in Christ are renewed individually, that's true. But it's more than that, because what we all get to do is be a part of this new community. We're called from however we were living our disparate lives before, now come to form into this new community. It's why we have that plaster on the back wall every single week, and we say it probably every single week, if not more. We're a gospel-formed family on mission, not gospel-formed individual or individuals on mission. It's a little less... You know, it's a little less of a kick to it. Well, isn't it great that we get to be all separate? No, we get to be, live as a family together. So this, uh, as I said before, this letter has three main characters. And this week we're going to look at Onesimus. Here's a bit of a background in, in case you're like, what in the world's going on in this letter? The Apostle Paul, he's in Rome at this time. Uh, he's writing to a leader at a church, called, a church in a place called Colossae. So unlike now, then if there was a church, that was it. That was the church at Colossae. It wasn't like... First Baptist, and then like the Pentecostal church, and then like, you know, the independent church, and then the Presbyterian, no, it's like the church at Colossae, that's what it was. So if you didn't like the music at Colossae, sorry, like, that's what you got. Like, ah, the pastor, his accent's really annoying. Well, that's all we got, because we're in Colossae. Uh, so the leader of that church in Colossae, his name is Philemon. So that's, when, that's who is uh, receiving the letter. The one who's delivering the letter is Onesimus. So Paul's writing the letter. Philemon's getting it. The one who's delivering it 
is Onesimus. Onesimus is this like fugitive slave. He was one of, or he currently is, a slave of Philemon's. He ran away, and now Paul's sending him back. And actually, if you kind of read a little bit between the lines, um, when Onesimus left and ran away from Philemon, uh, he also stole some things as he went because it was a difficult journey to make, he had to finance that journey. So really, so none of us may be actual slaves or slave owners. Please, no one's a slave owner. Um, if you are, we need to have a chat. But the, um, the questions that I think we'll get through in reading something that might feel and sound a bit like far, like dated and foreign and stuff like that, is what does it mean to live in vulnerability when everything inside of us wants to focus on self-preservation? Now, that is something that is just as true and a need and a question now as it was back then. How can we face the hard situations that God places in our lives when we battle with running away? Same thing going on then, same thing going on now. What does overcoming our shame look like? Same thing coming over then, same thing now. These are the questions that, uh, through Onesimus, God is going to force us to deal with. And in here, we find the gospel is big enough to change Onesimus, and it's big enough to change us. The story of Onesimus, written to different people long ago, really does confront us in our time because we value self-preservation over vulnerability, or at least that's how we act, especially when we've been wronged by other people. And we think that's the best option. Of course, we could easily think of, like, what good can come from being vulnerable in front of someone who has already hurt me? Isn't it better for everyone to just kind of pretend it didn't happen and maybe just move on? But then in our mistakes, instead of proceeding with humility, we get prideful. We try and overcompensate for what we already know is wrong. Uh, say, well, maybe I shouldn't have acted that way, but you would have acted the same way if he would have done that to you. Or, you know, they kind of deserve what was coming to them. Or I don't need to apologize for what I said. I just feel that way. I'm just expressing my feelings. We say all those things all the time. But maybe there's a better way to live. As Christians, we have a new community. That means a new set of relationships and a new way those relationships ought to work themselves out. It's not a perfect community because it's made up of people like you and me. So it can't be perfect. But it is a community that has an ideal of what it's moving towards, which is different than the status quo of what's kind of acceptable. Now, sometimes, because we are all broken people, sometimes our brokenness can rub up against each other, and that can create conflict, or at least create like difficult and awkward situations. I don't know what's worse, a conflict or a possibility of awkwardness, but they're all bad. But those kind of situations that we're often like, I don't want to, I have to move house, I cannot be near this person anymore, and all those difficult situations are exactly what God calls us into, not to run away, but to go deeper. So our natural response is to flee to self-preservation, but Jesus enables us to live with vulnerability. And without vulnerability, you can have a community that's just really shallow. And you can talk about things and talk about your day and talk about your week, but that's basically as deep as it'll get. With it, though, with vulnerability, that will allow a community to be transformative. So we're going to look at three things in this letter, what God is going to teach us. He's going to teach us about our difficult situations Onesimus has one, so do we. We have many. Um, we're going we're to learn about our natural human response to those difficult situations, and then we're going to learn about a better way to live. So the first thing, let's just talk about the difficult situations. Onesimus' story. So the background here, he's a slave in the household of Philemon. Um, he's basically thinking to himself, well, this isn't good. I don't want to stay a slave. I should better myself. Where will I go? Well, he chose to run really far away to Rome, a thousand miles. Here's the Google Maps thing. If you want to walk from Colossae to Rome, 
I guess it's 261 hours. And there's also some like water journeys in there, all sorts of things. It's longer than the length of the UK. If you go from the top of Scotland down to the bottom of Cornwall, you would still have to walk a little bit farther. Um, so this costs money, this kind of thing, especially back then. So how are you going to pay for it? You're a slave. Maybe you don't have a whole lot of money. Well, you have to steal some things from your rich slave owner on your way. So Onesimus is scheming and planning to steal to pay for running away. And then, he, so he, he's um, part of this, this household that Philemon is a leader of a church. Somehow, all the way in Rome, he meets another Christian, this guy named Paul, who seems to know a few things about what it means to be a Christian. And the more that Onesimus is hanging out with Paul, he stops being a fugitive and becomes a follower of Jesus through knowing Paul. He goes from fugitive to follower. Now, at this time... The Christian world is small. We know the Christian world is small in art. If you meet a Christian you, in, in Manchester, you probably not sort of know them, or it's like not six degrees of separation. It's like one degree of separation. Oh, yeah, I know that guy, or oh, I know you, because there's not very many of us, right? But then there was even less. And Paul knows the leader of the church, Philemon, who Onesimus ran away from. And as a follower of Jesus, Paul encourages Onesimus to do the difficult thing, to go back. Not to go back in the same way, but, but to go back nonetheless. Now, Paul is going to write to Philemon, uh, but Onesimus does have to go back, and he does have to do some things himself. And like us, surely, Onesimus is going to be valuing self-preservation over vulnerability. And we would do the same thing, of course. It makes sense. Now, let me um, briefly talk about slavery um, at this time, because when you say slave today is very different than what slavery was like then. Not, not that it was necessarily good, but it is different. Being a slave in the ancient Near East, especially during this time writing, uh, there's a range of experiences. Sometimes it was good, sometimes it was bad. Um, teachers, accountants, um, people who manage households and things like that, they, they were slaves as well as they were citizens or free people. Um, Greek slaves in particular were often highly educated because they ran the stuff in, in the house. Um, unskilled slaves, like those who might be condemned to slavery for as a punishment, had much more difficult lives. They worked on farms and mines and mills. It was more of a brutal life, and, and their lives were very short often. Slaves uh, during this time could hold property. They were subject, uh, sometimes subject to physical punishment. Um, sometimes they would end up being like something like, like prostitutes, but sometimes they were treated very well, and they were kind of like a CEO of a business kind of thing. It all depended on the master and the role. Now, here's an example. A slave's testimony in court at this time could only be acceptable if the slave was tortured first, because the idea was the slave was so connected to their owner uh, that uh, an owner isn't even the right word, because they didn't necessarily own the people, but I guess master, boss. The slave was so connected to their master that they wouldn't give up any information about them. So they felt like they had to torture them first, so yay, slaves. Um, some slaves could hold property. I mean, in Rome, actually, and this is maybe a reason why Onesimus went to Rome, uh, in Rome, freed slaves could become citizens. So if Onesimus pretended like he was a freed slave, he could go through the path of citizenship. Now, that's a very different reality. I mean, sometimes it was good, sometimes it wasn't so good. It's a very different reality from the kind of slavery during the contemporary, more modern times of African chattel slavery, where you kidnap somebody, they, there's a price that you pay for them, and you force them to do stuff. You can do whatever you want to them because they're property. That was a very different situation. Neither is good, um, but it, it's a little bit of a different thing. Um, the, often, when we talk about slaves, there's always a question of, like, why didn't the New Testament writers 
like say that slavery should be abolished? Like why did they never try and undo that as a as a structure? Well, the writers of the New Testament don't talk about abolishing slavery in itself particularly. Um, and to understand that, maybe this example will help. During this time uh, where Paul is writing, it wasn't uncommon for unwanted babies to be just left out to the elements and they would die. And that was not an illegal thing to do. It was just a thing you would do. Oh, we wanted a boy. We got a girl. We're going to leave her out and she's going to die. Um, that was what, what the church did. Um, was save those children and adopt them as their own, which is a very radical thing to do because children and people didn't have the kind of value and dignity that they have in our kind of assumed time now. So the writings in the New Testament don't address saving babies. They don't address killing babies or saving babies or anything like that. Um, But the church did carry this out anyway because the church saw it as a natural implication of being made in the image of God, a natural implication of of, uh, expending yourself for the benefit of someone else. And that's because what the early church taught regarding about compassion and human dignity was deeper and more foundational than any kind of institutional problem. And those institutional problems are problems. But they, it started at a deeper level. So the church sought not to undermine an unjust system, but the church really did seek to undermine injustice itself, which goes deeper than all that, but does include that. Does that make sense? Well, that makes a little bit of sense. Because there's so many things that the New Testament writers didn't address and could have. But the, uh, the implications of our theology that we get handed down from people like Paul means we ought to act in these kind of just ways. I mean, just think of how radical, for a moment, even though, okay, we, he, didn't, he didn't say, let's abolish slavery, although he is kind of telling Philemon to free Onesimus. But just think of how radical Paul is getting at here. A master and a slave, two completely different class systems. If we think we have a problem with class, go to Rome. They have a major problem with class. You can't even be in the same room, can't even talk to each other. But Paul is calling a master and a slave brothers. Brothers are equal. Brothers are are the same. That would change the whole master-slave relationship, if that even existed. That would would mean a master-slave relationship wouldn't look anything at all like what a master-slave relationship would look like previously. One brother is not property of another. So the silence on the particular topic of slavery is actually rightly placed within the deafening roar of how the Bible talks about human dignity, how the Bible talks about our common unity, and how God has called us to live those things out. Now, you might have lots of questions on that, and I would love to chat more about that. I didn't put it up on the bottom. Um, I normally have it down here. Um, there is an anonymous way to enter in questions, and we'll talk about them after the sermon if you bring them in. RedeemerMCR.com slash ask, and then I won't know who it comes from, so you can heckle me as well if you want. Um, my wife does every Sunday. No, just a few. Um, okay, so that's a little bit about slavery. And if you were like, oh, I actually have more questions about that, I, let's, let's talk more about that. Just send it through that, and we'll talk about it after the sermon. Now, also, in ancient Rome, um, honor is important in a way that we don't quite get because we're very kind of highly individualized here. But um, honor in ancient Rome was often used as a form of currency. If you had a lot of money, what you would do is throw a really big party and invite a lot of people over, and they would be in your debt, your debt of honor. If you could get things done, um, uh, whether it was like, let's say, um, you want to build an extension to your house and you can't get the builder out, or you know, there's housing regs and all that kind of stuff. Someone does that for you. You're in their debt. You're in their honor debt. And basically then, it's kind of like a godfather situation. When that person needed something, he would call on his debt for you to do that. Oh, I need someone to, I don't know, about whacking somebody or killing somebody. Um, but at least like, it, was, it, was a, it was a way to leverage, getting, to kind of manipulate people into getting what you wanted to get done. 
And the same way works here in, in, in what's going on in this letter, the relationships in this letter. Um, I mean, picture yourself as Onesimus. You're a slave. You're not high on the cultural power totem pole. You're very low. You run away. You even take a few things as you go. In your mind, by the time you get to Rome, I, however long it took him, in your mind, like, you're free, basically. Like, you don't, Philemon's not going to come out to Rome and find you. Although maybe not completely free, maybe pretty much free. Because you have this nagging feeling in the back of your head. Uh, maybe things aren't quite right. Maybe I'm not, well, I even get to be a citizen. What do I do now? And then you meet this guy named Paul. And that nagging feeling that was maybe this big now feels like super big. It's like, oh, now I, I can't sleep. I gotta, something has to figure itself out. The shame of going back to Philemon. Just think about that. I mean, that's not like a, uh, like a day's walk, a day's, day's journey. This is like... A long time, and the shame of having, of, of thinking, but what, what is he going to say? How is he going to react? How is the rest of the household going to react? All the other people that knew I ran away and stole from him, how, what is that going to be like? Surely that has got to be heavy on your shoulders. Who likes to deal with these things? Nobody. That's why we all run away. We don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to deal with shame. Now, we all have hard situations. We may not be in Onismus' actual situation, but we all have difficult situations. And the, really what, what we should be doing here is to recognize where you are now. That might be a difficult situation. That's the first step, to recognize what yours might be. Onismus would never be able to shake away the fact that he was a fugitive slave. He would always be living with that unless he went back. And just as much as we can't shake the hard situations that God has called us to. It could be difficult family situations and relationships. Families are really hard to navigate sometimes. That neighbor who you kind of have to live with because they're next door and they're not moving away. The coworker who you've wronged or has wronged you. Or maybe you've wronged them and they don't even know it was you. And they talk about it every now and then like, oh yeah, that sounds horrible. Mm. Um, and you realize, oh, that was me. I mean, the people who are closest to us, it's, it's often the most difficult things, your partner, boyfriend, girlfriend, your exes. Even our missional communities. I mean, here's a little secret. Just because you're in an MC with people doesn't mean you're always going to love them forever and they're going to be the best friends in your life. You're going to have, if, if we're doing this family thing right, we are going to have issues with each other. And actually, a sure sign of a shallow community is one that never has conflict with each other. So those conflicts are going to come up. What are we going to do about it? Are we going to run away, or are we going to go back to it? And we may not be runaway slaves who have stolen from our master, but we all have difficult situations that Jesus is calling us into. So we all have that situation. And in these situations, just like Onesimus, we all have a natural uh, human response. Oh, lost it there. Just pretend like that says response. We're using our imagination this morning. So Onesimus, he's the slave, no culture power, he ran. And if he ran to begin with, that should tell us the situation was probably not great. If that's the risk he's taking, it's like anyone who uh, is, goes through the difficult journey of, of immigration or something like that, it probably means your home situation was not great, and so you had to go somewhere else. We aren't told if Philemon treated Onesimus with, with respect or not. We're not told kind of like the background at all. But we have to kind of have an idea that surely to do all that and to steal as it goes, not the best beginning start situation. In fact, look at um, verse 18 where uh, Paul says, and this is where we're kind of reading in between the lies. Paul, Paul says, if he, talking about Onesimus, has done you, Philemon, if Onesimus has done Philemon 
any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. And I'm Paul, I'm writing this with my own letter, so you know it's actually coming from me. That, that's Paul's very polite way of saying all the stuff he stole, it's an IOU, and, and I'm going to pay it back. But what about this? Didn't Onesimus have the right to leave? Surely. He's a slave. Like, isn't that a good thing to leave a situation of slavery? I am a slave, and I even have to steal you know, if I want to leave. Why, why can't I just do that? Why can't I just, why, why, what's wrong with that? As Onesimus is making the change from fugitive to follower, Paul is teaching him, and us who are all reading it, an important lesson, that the rights and obligations of others are, ought to be above our own. So maybe he did have the right to leave. And maybe even after going back, he's being freed and he'll, he'll leave anyway. But not without facing the hard thing first. Because the rights of other people, the obligations to others, do outweigh our own, including our own sense of self-protection. Now, let's for, even though I just said that, let's talk about what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean that you are called to be a doormat because you're a Christian. You're just supposed to take the abuse and people can rub their feet on you and do whatever they want to you. That, that's not how Jesus lived either. It's not what Paul is calling us to. I mean, there are some people who will take advantage of you, and the best way to love them is to not let them, to put boundaries up to not allow them to take advantage of you. That requires really strong boundaries. If someone defrauded you and asked for forgiveness and somehow you're able to reconcile, you're not going to just give them your bank details right away. Right? That would be stupid. That would be dumb. But you can live in a reconciled relationship with someone who has defrauded you. So we're not called to hold grudges. At the same time, we aren't called to be naive. And that can sometimes be a bit of a, like, oh, so therefore like, we're supposed to be Christian doormats. No, we're not. We're supposed to be wise and know what we're doing, but also um, live with vulnerability that can lead to forgiveness. And sometimes we need to love others and ourselves well by putting those healthy boundaries up. Sometimes that's what we need to do. Now, that's not an excuse to put walls around everything, but it is sometimes what you do to guard yourself against people who are just going to abuse you anyway. And really, when you think about it, if it's someone who's going to abuse you, a way to love that person is to prevent them from doing a thing that's not good for them either. Now, Onesimus, being a Christian, though, he didn't have the right to act in this way of, of running away and not setting that right. There was a cost in him running away. And in verse 11, there's this play on words here. And you might even have a, um, like a little um, uh, superscript letter. Like the word. Onesimus just mean, it means useful. It's Greek for useful. Verse 11 Paul is telling Philemon, formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. So before all this, Onesimus, even in his name, is supposed to be useful. Before all this, is useless. But now in sending him back, he's going to be useful, not just to you, but to me as well. Why is that, Why is that going to be useful to Paul? Because you get to see this, the Christian community is going to be reconciled in a way that's going to be useful to way more people than just Philemon and just Onesimus. But in Onesimus' natural response of fleeing, which is totally, completely understandable, he's not playing out to his name. In fleeing, he ceases to become who he truly is. He's playing some other game. He's become useless as he flees what God's called him to. Now, we don't often think about it, but there is a high cost to us in living in self-protection. Because we don't get to experience community in the way that we ought to. We may not get hurt, yeah, but also we're not going to get life. We are called to live out what God has really called us to be. And self-protection in areas where we don't need it holds us back. It also prevents us from showing up for other people. We hold others back as we hold ourselves back. It's not a good thing. So as Onesimus moves from fugitive to follower, he moves from being useless to useful. 
Now, I only learned about um, this natural human uh, response called um, cold shock response. Does anyone know this cold shock response? I mean, probably if you're a good citizen of the world, you do. Um, basically, if you get plunged into icy water, the fir- your first response is to gasp, which is not good if you're going to drown because then the water comes in. You only- and I found out also in doing this research, if anyone does like a... There's a lot of sounds out there. There's, uh, if anyone does um, any research on my search history for Google, they'll be like, what kind of weird person is this? How, ma- how much water does it take for you to drown? Um, but it's really just half a pint of water. And you, yeah, that starts the drowning process. So if you jump into icy water, you, can you, yeah, thanks. Um, if you jump into icy water, your first response is to gasp because of the, the shock of the cold. You drink just a little bit of water and that begins a drowning process. But that is the natural human response. We're all naturally going to want to do that. And that's a natural human response that will kill us. Another natural human response that will kill us is when we flee difficult situations and don't get involved in the community. We will slowly die. And regardless of what we think we have the right to do, as a member of God's community, we don't have the right to run away from hard things. Now, some of us are hiding things. Probably all of us are in some way. You might even need to own up to something, apologize for something, confess a secret sin of yours to someone. We think secrets are going to kick us out, which is why we don't share them. That's why we don't want to be vulnerable because we think that's going to kick us out. But secrets keep us from getting in. Secrets don't kick us out. They keep us from getting in. And there's a power that our sin has when it's in the dark. And if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know what that's like. Once you talk about the struggle or confess it to somebody, there's a, like, there's a weight that's been lifted. That's what it's called. The Bible talks about bearing each other's burdens. That's an aspect of that. Secret things that we do or believe or tell someone else that nobody else knows. We think, well, we survived this long. Like, Surely we could probably just survive the rest of our life without having to tell anybody about that. Nobody needs to really know about that. So I'm just going to keep it inside. And like a cancer, it will slowly eat at you. Now, some cancers you can live with. But this cancer doesn't stop growing. It gets into your soul's bloodstream. And it like metastasizes into all areas of your body. And eventually, you're just, there's not going to be any life in you. What Onesimus teaches us in this letter is that God calls us to live for something more calls us to live for something better, and calls us to live with the open vulnerability that we have with each other. I just wish that was planned at like a really strong point. You know, it's like a, one of those really like alpine kind of trumpet things. That's a shame. If you're wondering what in the world's going on online, there's a protest or something going on outside, and someone just blew some homemade trumpet. Um, what God does call us to is to live with the open vulnerability with each other. Anyone can live up, hold up hermit lives. Anybody can live that way. But surely we want to live something better than that. Even when we mess up and make mistakes, wouldn't, even when you mess up and make mistakes, wouldn't you at least want your life to be open and vulnerable? Maybe you don't. Maybe you don't, aren't doing it, or maybe like that's scary, you're not doing it, but isn't that something that we all desire? We all kind of want that for people to know us. I think we'd all like that, but we don't all do it. So how do we get from liking the thing, or at least maybe 1% desire of the thing, to actually doing it? Well, living in vulnerability first means not relying on ourselves, which is a difficult thing because all other parts of our lives tell us to rely on ourselves for everything. And this is the opposite of the natural human response, kind of like the cold, cold shock response. 
ironically, what we need is someone else other than ourselves to show us who we really are, because we don't really know. We have an idea, but we don't really have a, 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 the full picture. And then when, when that happens, we move from useless to useful, from a fugitive to a follower, from a slave to a brother. So if our natural response in the difficult situations is to run away, let's look at a better way to live. And what Jesus does is he invites us to a better way to live as we follow him. Onesimus is facing this really hard situation, one where he's done some wrong, but lots of wrong surely has been done to him. Maybe he has the right reasons, but he also has this shame. He's not going the natural human response of running away, because Paul is asking him to deliver this letter. And one reason probably why we still have this letter is because Philemon followed through with all the stuff that Paul told him to do. But Onesimus is being vulnerable by going to Philemon. Now why? How is he doing this? What in the world would be his motivation for doing this really difficult thing? This all stems from the gospel that Onesimus was converted to. So what is the gospel for Onesimus in this situation? Like, What is the better way to live? Before we talk about our friend Onesimus, and you, you probably didn't know how many times the word Onesimus was going to be said in you know, a 30-minute period, um, now you can wow your friends of like, hey, let's read Philemon, because I know how to say Onesimus. Um, wait, where did everybody go? Oh. Um, well, Jesus is a model for a better way to live. Let's talk about what it means to be vulnerable. How was Jesus vulnerable? He was born, that, born as a baby. That doesn't make any sense. Surely there's nothing more vulnerable than that. He had a life. that He had to eat. He got tired. People didn't like him. Some people did and then used him. He died, literally dying. He resurrected. And as he resurrected, he was showing himself very humbly to his disciples. He was shamed. He was mocked, beaten, harassed, made fun of. I mean, you remember any of that that we went through in Isaiah? All the stuff of the difficult things that happened to, to Jesus. They all came through the humans that he created. Jesus was sent into a difficult situation where sin was ruling where it shouldn't. And he knew it meant his death. It wasn't a surprise to him. He knew that he was, what he was going into. Holes in his body, slowly suffocating to death. And of all people who walked this earth... He was the only one who could truly protect himself, the only one who had actual legitimacy to truly protect himself. And yet he didn't live that way. He lived in this vulnerable way, this radically vulnerable way. He knew his father's glory was better than death. And if that's true, you find that you put others above yourself. And you find that you can offer yourself. So Jesus is the ultimate model for a better way to live. What a high and lofty standard. And if, that, if, if Jesus is only the way to live, then we're all going to get burned out because we're going to try and do it ourselves and no one will be able to do it themselves by themselves. So how, how can we do this impossible thing? Well, and he's not just the model of how to live, but he's also the means of how we get there. And here's what made the uh, impossible more than possible, but a, a reality. Because it is impossible for us to live this way. It's impossible what God calls us to do by ourselves. And Christ tells us, that he is always with us. And when he says something, generally true, good to believe it, that means he's always with you in all situations. Maybe that is what allowed Onesimus to be able to walk back to Philemon. He's not walking back by himself. Jesus is with him. And he's, he's with him, uh, but also inside Onesimus, inside of us, all those who follow him, we have the Holy Spirit taking up residence in our hearts. God himself in us, in our innermost being. The Father, through the Son, gives all those who are in Christ a gift, the gift of the person of the Holy Spirit. So there is no other way to live in a vulnerable way outside of the power of the Spirit in us. There just is not. That's what the gospel means for the situation of Onesimus, and that's what it means for us when we face our difficult situations. 
Now, if all that is true, and, and that's what Onesimus would believe if he's becoming a follower of Jesus, if all that is true, really, what can Onesimus fear? All that shame that he's going to walk into, that's actually really small on the totem pole considering the Father's glory and who Jesus is and what the Father has done in his life. Onesimus already has everything, so he can walk into anything and be okay. He already has everything he needs. Nobody can take that away, so he walks the better way. And because Jesus has done what he's done, that enables Onesimus to do what he did. And really, three main things here. The first thing he does is he listens to Paul. He's smart. He listens to Paul. He's not living on his own, but he follows those who are older and wiser than himself. And in doing that, he's living out the cross. He's dying to himself because Onesimus wants to do what he wants to do. But now this older, wiser guy who knows more about the Bible, knows more about Jesus, is more mature, saying, hey, you need to do this. He surely doesn't want to do it, but now he's listening to him. He knows God's calling him back to Philemon for reconciliation, and that's what part of living in this new community looks like. So he listens to Paul, but also a closely related second step is he follows through. He doesn't run from Paul as he did from Philemon. He doesn't say, yeah, that's good, that's interesting, I'll, I'll pray about it, and then like run away as fast as he can. He doesn't you know, stop responding to texts from Paul. Like Paul's like, ah, oh, Nismus has ghosted me again. It's because I told him to go back to Philemon. No, because he is a new man by the power of the resurrection, he can live out this every single day. If God is working through him and not on his own power, he can do these difficult things. He can follow through. So he listens to Paul. He follows through. And the third thing that Onesimus does is he gives Philemon, who's you know, high and mighty Philemon according to Onesimus, he gives Philemon an opportunity. Living through our natural human responses is withholding not just for us, but for other people. Onesimus gives Philemon an opportunity to see God in a new light. The way that Paul is talking about Onesimus surely is a revelation some level to Philemon. He's going to see his slaves differently. Maybe he's not going to have any slaves anymore. We don't know exactly how it turned out. Asking for forgiveness is an opportunity for someone else to extend forgiveness, and vice versa. Now, of course, even though that's what Onesimus did, that's what we can do as well, because the gospel for Onesimus is the same gospel for us. So what we should do is find people who are older and wiser in our lives and ask them about things and actually listen to them. I know that's a crazy thing, to listen to people. We have this like weird fetish of youth in the West. We're obsessed with youth, and so if you're youngish, um, basically, whatever age you are, you think you're young. Um, and, and I can say that as a 41-year-old man. The, um, of course I'm young. The, uh, we all think we have it, but we don't. People who are older and wiser, they're the ones who we should be asking. They've lived longer than us. They know way more about life than we do. Now, maybe these older people who are wiser, more mature, know more about Jesus than you do, maybe they aren't speaking um, into your life. So grab them by the collars and ask them to, like beg them to. Do, you know, Maybe the best thing I did when I was at uni was, I, we, I mean, whether it was literal begging or quite, it was finding older men. I lived with five other guys in this big, huge, massive, sweaty house because we didn't have aircon in Florida. It was the dumbest thing in the world, but it was very cheap. Um, and, uh, this is, um, and all of us had horrible dads. None of us had fathers that we would look up to or we'd say, oh, I know what it likes to be a father. I know what it likes to be a good husband. All of us were like, I think we're out of luck because our dads were horrible models. We're just going to be, we're, we want to, we're going to continue this horrible thing unless we get some help. So we begged the older men in the church we were part of to be like, can we just like hang out with you? Can we just like see what a, 
normal functioning family can look like so we have a, an idea of what it can be like and we and some guys said no actually we went through like four or five leaders in the church we're like no sorry we can't so we're like pulling our hair out um but we did find this one guy who was massively helpful and he opened up his house every week we, we studied some theology and stuff but one thing that still sticks, sticks with me today is and he um, was seeing a house where uh, family loved each other and they weren't perfect. They made mistakes all the time and they had to reconcile and things like that. But we saw it actually happening in, in normal life. And for someone like me, who has a horrible kind of uh, family history, to see that happen, not just in an idealized talk about world, but in, like actually see it in, in every day was, was amazing for me. And his, the person that we were looking up to, his family life was a complete wreck growing up. So it was like, oh, he had a horrible situation. Now he has a real family. That is a long kind of maybe semi-convoluted story to say, if it wasn't for that, um, I don't really actually know where I would be in my faith, to be honest. That he, uh, his name was Dana. Dana had so much, um, like, uh, so much of a good influence over me, and all, all probably five or six other guys who, and now it, it came into this huge group of like twenty or thirty people, and every single one of those people still look back like, ah, oh, at least I know it can happen, even just for a little bit. Like, there's a possible for a functioning family to happen, and even though I'm broken, I know I can help lead a family in that way. So find someone who's older and. Force them to mentor you, whatever you have to say. <laughs> don't say, I force you to mentor me. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe that's the way to do it. Um, I th- and we all need people to encourage us on, to, to cheer us on, to help us out. And this is why our missional communities are set up the way they are as well. That's, that, a lot of this stuff happens through our MCs. So we listen to other people, or we ought to. And we ought to follow through as well. I can't tell you the amount of times I've had pastoral conversations with people saying, if you keep on driving your car this way, you're going to run into that wall there. Like, oh, yeah, um, okay, I'll see you next week. Oh, I ran into a wall. Oh, why does God hate me? Kind of like this, like, that is the, that's the generic pastoral conversation of someone in a difficult spot. And what we, and I mean, I'm the same way with people who are like, if you keep on doing that, Greg, you're going to get burned out. I'm all right. Oh, I'm burned out. I wonder why. So we not only to, to have someone speak into your life, but to actually follow through with the things that they say. And if you don't know what to do, then ask them, like, I don't even know what the step would be. Can you help me with that? It's a very good, normal question to have. Now, these aren't new ideas. Like, in fact, like Redeemer's structured around these ideas happening because we know the church isn't a building. It's a set of relationships. And so that is the reason why we have... Um, our missional communities, that's really the reason why we have core groups, um, is for these things to exist. If you're not in an MC or a core group and you want to be and you're like, yes, I need what you're talking about. I just don't know who to get it from. Chat to me and we will sort you out. It'll be good. Lastly, um, like Onesimus, because of Jesus, we also get to give other people opportunities. Asking for forgiveness or, um, or the opposite of asking someone to, to, for an apology is an opportunity for someone else to extend that. It's a, it's a vulnerable thing to do that, which is why we don't do it very often. It's a difficult conversation. Extending forgiveness is a vulnerable thing. And if we never get here, Redeemer will just be a shallow community that might be okay and sort of fun to hang out with, but it's not going to be life-changing or transformative. In fact, it's, it, it will be less than that. It will be where life comes to die. If you're in a community where it stays shallow, that's where life goes to die. I don't want to live in that kind of community. I know none of us want to live in that kind of community, but unless we actively work against it, that's the kind of life we'll have. 
And though this is a good way um, for us to live with each other, it is also uh, the only path we have as Christians. It isn't like, wow, that's a good option. Maybe I'll try that sometime. Actually, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is the only path, reconciliation with each other. It's not like this is a good option. If you're a Christian, this is the way to live. Jesus has died to buy for himself a people that would live in this way. It was one of the reasons Jesus died was for this to be lived out. So if you believe in the cross and the resurrection, a community of people who live this way is the natural consequence. That's just naturally what happens. And it first starts with God. Because, of course, we're a lot more like Onesimus than we think. We're all fugitives. We've all ran away from our master. And we had a really good master. And we all decided, nah, we don't need him. We're going to do our own thing. And we've had the most perfect master. We ran away from him, stealing as we went. We ran to another city as far away as we can get. That wasn't our own. We tried to fake ourselves into thinking that we're free, but we never really quite got there. But our rebellion is actually what enslaves us in the end. We don't want to go back because we think our master is a slave driver, but the truth is, he's the opposite. He's a loving father who's been waiting for us to come back. He's good. He accepts us. And even more, when he draws us back into his household, he gives us even more than what we could hope to steal, even more than what our hands can hold. So we find that in God's house, we get to be his sons. We get to be his daughters. And now we're called to live in this house with other sons and other daughters. And sometimes we get along with them really well. Sometimes we get along with them not so well. But this is a new way of living. It's not out of self-protection, but one out of vulnerability. And we do this because we have a new identity that Jesus has given us. Through Jesus, we have moved from fugitive to follower. And we now get to be the radically accepted children of God. Because we live in this radical acceptance, we can be vulnerable with others. It's actually only, do we, only until we get how accepted we are in God will that free us to risk a little bit, to be vulnerable in the way that we ought to. We have been given the Holy Spirit to give us words when they fail us, to give us boldness when we're weak, to give us the power to face when we ought to. Now this is the beauty of living as a follower of Jesus. And this is just one aspect of the beautiful story that we get to put on display, the gospel for Onesimus and the gospel for us. So we have a good master, and when we ran away, instead of punishing us or extracting a payment, he took the payment on himself. Jesus dying on the cross was the cost that we should have paid to be with him, and yet he's the one who paid it, and he's the one who draws us in. In the ultimate act of vulnerability, the Son of God died. He saw a bunch of fugitives, a bunch of people on the run, thinking that they'd find their best life out there in the middle of nowhere, running from their problem and pain in themselves. So he took it upon himself to transform those fugitives into followers, to renew them and allow them to live in vulnerability instead of self-protection. Now, God never wants us to forget that. He never wants us to forget that. And one way he keeps this memory close to us is through the Lord's Supper. It's something we practice every week at Redeemer because we're so forgetful. We do this each week to keep this close to our hearts. And normally what we do um, is we uh, will eat and drink as we sing. But we're not going to do this for these three weeks. We're going to eat and drink together. uh, The bread and the cup both represent Jesus' body and blood that was given to death.